the last two weeks, and Graham for taking last week, Romans 5, and looking at um, verses 5 through 8, though I'm going to preach in there again a little bit this morning, uh, because what we're going to do this morning, since we'll finish up the first 11 chapters there of chapter 5, okay, so we have taken our time in walking through these verses all the way up till verse 9, so 9, 10, and 11 will be new for us this morning. But what I want to do is I kind of want to approach these 11 verses as a whole since it's our last time we're in it and make sure we connect all the dots and see what God wants us to see in these 11 verses. Don't worry, I'm not going to preach exact, you know, full exposition of everything, but just by way of reminder and with a, with a certain point of view and a way in which I approached this passage this week as I was thinking through it and studying it. And I'll explain that in just a moment. I'm going to begin with a question here, and it's not a trick question by now. If you've been with us, you should know at least the first answer to this should be immediate, and then the second one you'll be like, oh yeah, that's right too. And the question is this, who wrote the book of Romans? And of course, we would immediately say, in our studies, we'd say, well, Paul wrote the book of Romans. I mean, it even says so right in the beginning. He introduces himself as Paul, the apostle, writing to this church that, well, he hadn't visited yet, but he planned to and wanted to kind of give them his theology and write to them ahead of time so that when he gets there, he's expecting them to support him in his missionary endeavors. So from that perspective, we would be right and we would say that Paul wrote the book of Romans. But when we read the Bible, we always have to keep in mind what we might refer to as its dual authorship. But as Paul was writing, the Bible teaches us, because this is Scripture, the Holy Spirit of God was carrying Paul along. He was using Paul's language, the Greek language. He was using his intellect, his knowledge, his memory, the way he would shape sentences and reason things out using his personality, but was guiding him along so that every word that was written comes from him, comes from God. All scripture is breathed out by God, is what Paul says in 2 Timothy 3. And so when you're reading scripture, that becomes very helpful to keep that in mind. You look at that human author, you're thinking of the context in most books of the Bible. We know the human author. There are a few we don't or can't be certain of. We can only take guesses. But this is a letter that is unquestioned coming from the Apostle Paul. And at the same time, we need to say, these are God's words to us. And here's why I think that is so important in Romans 5, verses 1 through 11. Okay, the reason I'm beginning with that is for this reason. These are the things in these 11 verses that God wants you to know about your relationship to him And these are things that are divinely designed by God to give you assurance of your salvation and to build into you a confidence of his disposition to you, which is good, and he's for you, and nothing can ever change this fact. In other words, Romans 5, 1 through 11 is all about assurance, friends. 
God wants you to have assurance. This is why he's carrying along Paul in the power of the Holy Spirit, writing this, saying this, almost essentially what he said to Isaiah, comfort my people now. Let them know of my love for them. Let them know of the certainty of their salvation. Friends, isn't that encouraging to know that God is concerned that you know, if you're in Christ, God is greatly concerned that you know that you're right with him. That you know your salvation is assured. That you're secure in Christ. Okay? He doesn't want his people walking around with wishful thinking or well, I certainly hope I'm okay with God. I, I hope that I'm on my way to heaven. God wants you to know that. That's the, kind of the way that I want to approach this. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to pray now. Let's ask God's blessing on these 11 verses. I'm going to kind of just take them in sections, reminding us in some of them of what God wants you to know. And then in verses 9 through 11, we'll park on it for a few minutes because it's new material, okay? So that's what I'll do. Let's pray and ask God's blessing on this passage. Our Heavenly Father, we know these are your words breathed out by your Spirit, that they are ours in Christ, that we can claim these things in Christ as from you to us. And I pray that as I preach and teach now, your Spirit would guide me and gift me in such a way that as I explain this passage, all of your people here will be able to see the truths that you want them to see and that your spirit would take these truths and apply them directly into the hearts of your people. Only you can do that, God. And so we ask you to do it. We know it would glorify you. I pray that we would all leave now just with this settled assurance of your love for us and of our the completeness of the salvation you've provided for us in Jesus. So I'm asking that in his name. Amen. Do you remember verses 1 and 2? We spent quite some time there. What about verses 1 and 2? Does God want us to know that is designed to give us assurance? Well, let's read them. Therefore, says Paul, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. So what does he want us to know? Well, you've been justified by faith. Not any works of your own or your ability to keep the law. It's faith in Jesus and what he has done for you. And you're justified. You're declared righteous. You're forgiven of all your sins. They'll never be held against you because they were held against Christ on your behalf. His righteousness is credited into your account. So you have every every spiritual ounce of righteousness you could ever need to get into the presence of God. Not only that, he says, since that's the case, now you have peace with him. You're at perfect shalom with God. You have peace with God now. His disposition to you is one of smiling countenance and delight in you. And you stand in grace before him. 
So that you understand that you're standing in grace. You're standing before God. Your relationship with him has never been about your merit. It's always been and will continue to be his grace to you and the merit of Jesus Christ. And that's why he wants you to know that you can confidently rejoice and boast and wait and anticipate and pray for the hope of every Christian when Christ appears and you too appear with him in glory. You can rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Like no doubt about it. And remember how these things are all put forward here in all 11 verses. They're put forward as statements of fact. There's no doubt about them. These are just statements that are true about you, that are true about your relationship to God, that are true about your eternal destiny. These are just statements of fact that God wants you to hear, read, know, believe, meditate on so that you can have assurance, you see. And in verses 3 and 4, what does God want us to know in verses 3 and 4 that he is designed to be assuring to us? Well, let's read them. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. God wants you to know, friends, that when you suffer... And while you suffer, his disposition towards you and your rightness with him has not changed. And that what he's doing is in love, he's using that suffering, he's using that trial, whatever it may be, he's using it for saving purposes in your life, like building within you endurance and faith, which we all need. And God builds it during the times of suffering. You need endurance. And of course, that will produce proven character. Tested, tried, and true. The genuineness in your faith. And what does that do? That just increases your hope. As your assurance grows through suffering, your assurance and faith, your endurance and faith, and that produces itself hope and that longing and expectation and confidence that when Christ appears, I'll be with him in glory and I get, in the end, I get to be with God forever. He wants you to know that, Christian, to build your assurance. And then, of course, there are verses five through eight and I listened to Graham's message. He did an excellent job in these verses. Do you remember what God wants you to know that is designed to build assurance for you? He says in hope, verse 5, does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person. Perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But listen, God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. What does God want you to know about your relationship to him here that is going to build your assurance? And it's found in verse 5 and verse 8. 
right? God wants you to know that he loves you. Beyond a shadow of a doubt. Like God never wants his people thinking, I wonder if God loves me. He screams it at you. You're loved. I love you. You can be assured of my love for you. And it's not just in these verses, is it, friends? With a careful reading of the entire New Testament, you just go passage by passage and you find all these verses, all these ways in which God demonstrates his love to his people, how he explains his great love for his people. This is assuring love that he wants us to just rest in. Remember once reading Daniel and there's that phrase when the, when the angel shows up to Daniel and is going to give him a vision, he says, Daniel loved by God. I remember thinking, wow, I would love to hear God say to me directly or through an angel, right? He loves me. Well, friends, I have far better word here than from an angel. I've got the very words of God on the pages of Romans 5 where God assures me, I love you. You're loved by me. Friends, how can that love, how would that love affect you if you had that in your mind all day long? Like there was no doubt about it. This God loves you and nothing can change that fact. Remember, this is the inseparable love of God for us in Christ that he talks about in Romans 8, right? What can separate you, Christian, those of you who know the Bible? What could you think of? What experience you have? What person could you encounter? What angelic force, what situation of life could ever separate you from the love of God in Christ? Anything? No. This is the unseparable, unbreakable, unchangeable love of God. And you know who gets this assurance? Believers. The reality is that the rest of the world doesn't get to enjoy and experience this love for them. You want to know why I know that? Because in verse 5, in whom, how does God communicate internally his love to people? It's through the Holy Spirit, right? I mean, look at the verse. He says in verse 5, Hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Who gets the Holy Spirit? Does everybody get the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit? No, only believers get this. This is that unique love that the Spirit takes and pours into our hearts. What a privilege it is that we get to experience this. Paul in Romans chapter 8 verse 9 says, You, however, are not in the flesh but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But we have the Spirit of Christ dwelling in us, pouring out that love, and what it, what it displays, just as, just as Graham brought out last week, is that God just doesn't want you to know that he loves you. He wants you to feel it. God's so concerned that his people know 
how much he loves them and be so certain about this love is that he pours out the spirit in our hearts and among a number of things, the spirit pours out this internal feeling and sense of the love of God for us. He loves me and he loves you if you're in Christ and he wants you to know it and he wants you to feel it. I want to connect a couple of verses for this in the, before we go on to verses 9 through 11 because I think I, I have a point in this. I'm going to get to it, so f- stay with me now. And, but I think it's important to connect some scriptures to this so it just kind of broadens out the understanding, okay? Because I think Paul does something in Romans 8 that connects us right back here to Romans 5 and the idea that the Spirit given to us. So that's where he's really going to talk about the Spirit is in Romans 8. And he's going to connect this idea of being loved by God, but he's going to use different terminology, okay? And I want to show it to you. So you can look at Romans 8, or I'll put it up on the screen, verses 15 to 16. And Paul says this in verse 15 of Romans 8, you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Okay? But you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Now listen to this. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. What I think is being discussed here is the same, in essence, the same thing he's talking about back in chapter 5. The Spirit of God pours out his love for us. What kind of love is this? This is a unique love. I mean... God is love, so he has a love for the world. And by that, I would mean every person. Even Jesus said, hey, love your enemies and do good to them. That's what God does. He has this kind of love for his enemies. He does good to them. He gives them rain. He provides for them. He's got a benevolent character. But this love that the Spirit communicates to us is unique It's different than that. It's a fatherly love reserved for his children. And you know, I don't think that's hard for any of us to understand. I've I've been here 11 years now, and I have seen some kids that have been here that whole time. They grew up in this church. They were little kids, now they're not anymore. Aiden, okay? I saw him as an annoying little kid, eight years old. Now he's an an annoying young man. No, I'm just kidding. He's a great guy. And I love Aiden, but I got to confess, I love my son in a different way. I love my children differently, uniquely, than I love your children. And could anybody blame me for that? That's the way it is, right? And that is this everyday earthly illustration among the family that God shows. See, my love for you, and this is what Paul's trying to communicate to the church in Rome, God's love for you is that unique, fatherly, special love. And what a privilege it is. No one else is having this. No one else gets to experience this. Only those who have the Holy Spirit communicating it to them. 
in our lives, the Spirit is pouring out that love, and, and part of that is just bearing witness with our spirit, I mean, assuring us, assuring our inner person that we are children of God, reminding us, don't forget that. If you're walking through suffering, if you're walking through trials in your dark days, in your failing days, whatever kind of day you're having, don't forget this says the Spirit, you are children of God and you are loved by God with this fatherly love. You see, when Jesus steps on the scene and he starts talking to his disciples and training his disciples in things like prayer and they say, Lord, teach us to pray. And he says, okay, I'll teach you, my disciples, to pray. Our Father who is in heaven God wants you to know that his love for you is unique. He wants you to feel it, experience it, know it, that we get this love. And friends, when, okay, here's a question we need to answer. When did that love, that fatherly love for you begin? Was it, let me give the, one of the possible answers. You know when that fatherly love for me began? When, you know when I became a child of God is when I believed in Jesus. That's when that love began. And I would say, that might be the way you've been thinking about it, but that's not what the Bible teaches. Put up on the screen Ephesians chapter 1. Begins in verse three that's not on the screen, but he says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And then he starts naming those blessings like this. Look at, even as he chose us in him, here's the time frame, before the foundation of the world, with this intention for us, that we should be holy and blameless before him. We weren't. But he says, I choose you to be before me and my son in Christ to be holy and blameless because of his work. Now listen to this. In love, so with this disposition towards you, the ones he chose, in love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Friends, according to the Bible, because I'm not making this up, I'm just reading what it says. When did his fatherly choice and disposition turn to you and say, you're going to be in my family and I'm making this choice in love. I'm determining, I'm setting my love on you now for you to be in my family through Jesus Christ. Was it when you believed? No. It was before you were born. It was before the world was created. It was in eternity past in the mind and heart of God. He chose you and he set that love on you. Yeah, in a sense, you could say, I was a child of God when I was living in absolute rebellion and sin against God. I just didn't know I was a child of God yet. 
Never forget driving along with my aunt and my mom one day, and we passed somebody. It must have been some kind of riffraff on the side of the road or something was going awry, and they were discussing it. And my aunt said, well, he may be saved and just not know it yet. That was insightful. Even as a little boy, I didn't understand what she would be talking about. See, friends, it's very important for you to understand that, and here's why. Because before the foundation of the world, you hadn't done anything to merit his love, gain it, earn it, achieve it. His love was completely unmerited set on you. That's why he says, to the praise of his glorious what? Grace. I didn't achieve this standing with him in the first place. I didn't like do some things that made him love me. I wasn't lovable. And yet he sets his love on me and predestines me into his family. And the reason God says this to us, he didn't have to tell us about this. God was under no obligation to tell you about what happened in eternity past in his mind and heart. But he wants you to know it so you can have assurance of his love, that you didn't do anything yesterday to make yourself so unlovable before God that he no longer loves you with this fatherly love, you see? It was never achieved. It began before the foundation of the world. What a wonderful truth to understand. Some of us, perhaps, and let me just make a side note here. The side note, so main sermon, side discourse just for a second. Some of us were taught the doctrines of election and predestination in what I call the context of conflict. Which means that maybe the first time you ever heard about it was in some church kerfuffle where some, everybody's going along their merry way and somebody comes along with a Bible and says, hey, um, do anybody notice that the Bible says God chose us Before the foundation of the world to be saved, like there is what they call the elect. And it's like taking the pin out of a hand grenade and throw it in the room. (laughs) Now all of a sudden everybody's fighting and arguing about it. And the interesting thing, the ironic thing about that is that when you read about these doctrines, like in the context of Ephesians 1, the biblical context is always a context of comfort. Let my people know that I chose them before the foundation of the world. World's gonna reject them. World's gonna hate them. Let them know I loved them in eternity past, in grace set that love on them. Assure them of my love. Assure them of my choice of them. It's always in the context of comfort, not conflict. So if you were trained in those, in the context of conflict, go reread those passages in the context that God intended for them. And I think you'll find them, as one pastor used to say, to become a warm blanket to your soul. Because there is nothing more assuring than God settled your salvation from before the foundation of the world. And there's nothing, 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 nothing that can change the eternal purpose of his will for you. You won't come to your last days of life Wondering, did I do enough? 
Have I believed enough? Have I repented enough? Have I served enough? Have I loved God enough? Have I earned what I'm about to go into or not? No, you won't even be wondering that. Say, no, this was settled according to the purpose of the will of God from before the foundation of the world. His love cannot, was not earned. His love cannot be lost, friends. Not for his children. And you'll notice he says that back in chapter 5 now. He's going to reemphasize that. Didn't he? He says, for a while we were still weak. At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us and that while we are still sinners, Christ died for us. If you doubt that love, then what you do is you look at the cross and you ask yourself, what condition was I in when Christ died for me? I was not lovable God doesn't look down at a world of lost, sinful, rebellious human beings where he, he calls us here enemies of his before Christ. He doesn't look at us uh, as like a bin of puppies. Oh, they're so cute, aren't they? They're so adorable. I mean, I recognize sometimes they pee on the carpet and stuff, but they're just so cute. They're just so adorable. You were ungodly. You were under his wrath. You were at enmity with him. This is terminology of enemies, you see? It's in that condition that Christ died for us. So there's nothing you could do now. Isn't that what Paul's arguing? Much more now? Can't you be confident much more now? If that was your condition then, how much more now? You were never saved because of your lovableness or loveliness. How much more now can we have assurance that he will save us in the end? And that leaves us with verses 9 through 11 where God wants you to know and be fully assured of this fact, Christian, that in the end, you and I will be fully and finally saved. You want to talk about verses for the assurance of salvation? It's Romans 5, verses 9 and 10. Now listen to this. Since therefore... We have now been justified by his blood. Much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, here's more reasoning, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are uh, reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. You'll notice that expression in uh, verse 9 and verse 10. As Paul reasons this through, he says, much more, verse 9, shall we be saved. Verse 10, shall we be saved? That's the idea. It's not a question, statement of fact. We shall be saved. You could work it that way. Because of what God has done for us in Christ, we know this to be true. In the end now, we're talking about future salvation. Judgment comes. Revelation chapter 6 talks about the wrath of God coming upon this world in an unprecedented fashion. Judgment's coming. There's a place called hell. How can I know I'll be saved? Right here. We shall be saved. I can say that in assurance of everyone in here who's truly trusting in Christ and indwelt by his spirit. Friends, if that's your status right now this morning, I can guarantee you from scripture that you end up in glory and not in the wrath of God based on what Paul is saying. And you'll notice this. 
He says, verse 9, since therefore we have now been justified by his blood. That's an interesting passage, and it connects now. There's a connection by his blood to that wrath of God at the end of verse 9. So we've been justified by his blood, and in this case we shall be saved, and he brings out some particular aspect of it. We shall be saved by him from the wrath of God. Now, remember when we talked about wrath way back in chapter 1, the wrath of God is now being revealed. There's different elements of God's wrath. It's always against sin. And there's that time coming, right? We talked about that future time I just mentioned a minute ago, the time coming when the wrath of God's going to be unleashed on the world. And there is a place called hell God created in which people who do not have Christ will spend eternity bearing the wrath of God. Very heavy thoughts. Well, how do I know I'm not going to get there? The answer is by his blood. Now, that phrase should be familiar to us because we already looked at it back in chapter 3, and I want to show you this, this connection, okay? So look back at chapter 3 and look at verse 23 where Paul says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Look at verse 25. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. So there's that phrase, right? We know from Romans 5 we're going to be saved from the wrath of God because we're justified by his blood. Now back in chapter 3, we see that expression, by his blood, and it's connected, directly connected to this word propitiation. Do you remember what that word means? That word propitiation. It's a funny sounding word to us. We don't use it much. It only shows up four times, I think, in the New Testament, but the concept behind it is everywhere. What God had against us because of our sin was wrath. That was the whole context of Romans 1 through 3. The wrath of God on us because of our sin. So what did God do to remedy that and to save us from that wrath? He put forward his son, and that word propitiation means to appease wrath. It was used in pagan religion of a God would be mad at them and they would have to offer him some kind of sacrifice and that would appease his wrath so it was no longer there anymore and now the disposition had changed. But in a far more glorious way, what it is is we had incurred his wrath and what God did is put his son forward as a propitiation or this wrath absorbing sacrifice for the sins of his children. This is why we sing as Jesus, on that cross, as Jesus died, right? The wrath of God was satisfied. If the wrath of God is satisfied, then there's no more wrath for us. On that cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied, meaning there's no more wrath for us to face because for the children of God, that wrath has been satisfied in Christ by his blood. Does everybody see that connection? The wrath of God is satisfied for us in the cross through the death of Christ and therefore, guess what the disposition is? No more wrath. And as a matter of fact, we sing... About this in, in, um, in All I Have is Christ, right? It says, I beheld God's love displayed. You suffered in my place. 
You bore the wrath reserved for me. Now all I know is grace. See, friends, when you read the Gospels, and I've told, I told you this when we went through Matthew, I've talked about this when we looked at other aspects of the cross, when you see Jesus going to that cross, you're going to miss a massive amount of blessings if you look at it in this general way that Jesus just went and kind of generally died for your sins or for sins. What you need to do is take the scriptural approach and when you see Jesus marching to that cross, you need to know that when he was going to the cross, it was to make propitiation for the sins of all his people. So that when it was done, he could say, it is what? Finished. The wrath of God has been satisfied. The payment's been paid for my people. Now, all that's awaiting is, yes, my resurrection. And then at the right time in their lives, by the Spirit, through the gospel, I'll call them by name into the family of God. And he puts it here because he can say, by that blood that made propitiation for the sins of his people, being satisfied, being propitiated, being done away with now, there's no more wrath for my people. No matter what you're experiencing in your life, it's not the wrath of God. You're not being punished by him in that way. And according to Paul in Romans 5, there's absolutely no possibility of us coming into that wrath because of what Christ did for us on the cross. You know, we're coming into Christmas season, the Advent season, one of my favorite verses in all the Bible that guaranteed that the life of Christ and the death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ would be effective for his people. No doubt in God's mind. He didn't put forth Christ and then sit back and say, I wonder who's going to be saved now. The angel told Mary and Joseph, you're going to name him Jesus. Yeshua, Yahweh saves. She's going to bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. Is there any question about that? Was it ever a question that Jesus was going to save you, friends, from your sins. Is it a question now? By his blood, he's done this. Much more now, you can have assurance that you'll be saved from the wrath of God to come. You see? Jesus will save his people from their sins. John chapter 10, verses 15 to 16. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep, and I have other sheep that are not of this fold. That's you. That was you, by the way. Jesus in his life talking about you. He says, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also. They will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. Verses 27 and 28, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will ever snatch them out of my hand. That's how this works. And friends, when you have that right and proper view of salvation, of the work of Christ, of the cross and its effects, you can then have this confidence and assurance. You can know at every point in your life, verse 11, more than that, we also rejoice 
in God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we have now received reconciliation. Our disposition towards God is changed. We rejoice in him. We rejoice in what he's done. And we've been reconciled to him through the death of Jesus. You know, as I conclude this, I'll just conclude it with the first stanza of one of my favorite hymns, How Firm a Foundation. And I want you to apply it in these 11 verses. How firm a foundation, you saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in his excellent word. Romans 5, 1 through 11 is a firm foundation of assurance and confidence in the salvation that God has provided for you. What more, ask yourself this question, what more can he say than to you he hath said? What more information about your salvation would you need to know to give you assurance? Answer, nothing. He's told us everything we could ever possibly need to know to be assured in salvation if all we had was Romans 5, 1 through 11. That's a firm enough foundation to live the rest of your life and to wait for the glory of God to come. But we have much more than those 11 verses, don't we? We have an entire Bible replete with promises of God to us, assurance from God to us. You're my child, I love you, you're saved, you're on the way to the kingdom, rest in what I have provided for you through the work of my son. God wants you, Christian, to have assurance this morning. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your excellent word. And I pray for every person in this room who has fled to Jesus for refuge, that your spirit would be active now, assuring, pouring out that love, testifying with our spirit that we're children of God no matter what they're walking through Lord may they be able to do it with the confidence of your presence and love and the peace of knowing their eternal destiny is secured in Christ we ask it in his name amen the Christian can be confident of the love of God and the certainty of future salvation and deliverance because of that once for all propitiatory sacrifice of Jesus Christ. So the Lord is